When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to our final GSP Ace of the Day segment of the 2022 U.S. Open presented by DraftKings. Now, the good news is our partnership with DraftKings will extend past the Grand Slam action happening in New York. But folks, it's never too soon to get in on the action yourself. Test your knowledge as a tennis fan. And the best place to do that is with our friends at DraftKings. You go to the DraftKings Sportsbook today, not only Will you find everything you need regarding the U.S. Open, but all of the challenger action, all of the ITF action happening across the globe, it's all available to you on the DraftKings Sportsbook. Of course, you can also find whatever other sport you're looking for happening around the world as well. Turn to the DraftKings Sportsbook to test your knowledge and use our promo code AOD. Not only will let them know we sent you there, but you'll bet $1 using that promo code. You'll get $100 in free bets to use however you'd like throughout the course of the 2022 tennis season, or maybe it will be on a different sport. The point is, all of your action happening at the DraftKings Sportsbook. Turn there today, bet $1 using our promo code AOD. Get $100 in free bets. With that said, final day of Grand Slam action in this 2022 season is finally upon us. Day 14 of the U.S. Open. What does that mean? It's time for the men's singles final. And of course, this men's singles final is particularly intriguing as not only do we have two players competing for their first slam title, we have two players competing to ascend to the world number one ranking as Carlos Alcaraz coming off of 15 sets of tennis in his last three matches, 13 hours, 27 minutes spent on court. How much energy does the transcendent 19-year-old have left in the tank? That's the question all of us are wondering as he takes on one of the most consistent players not just of the 2022 season, but of the past two and a half years in men's professional tennis. Of course, I'm referring to Casper Ruud. Ruud, so efficient, led from the start in his four-set victory in the semifinals over Karen Hatchinov. You look for Casper Ruud. Not only did he have two days off between his quarterfinal and semifinal matches, he's only been pushed to five sets once in this event. That was back in round number three against Tommy Paul, of course. Of course, you look for Casper Ruud. I believe he becomes the eighth player of the 21st century. It may be fewer than that. I believe the number is eight, though, to reach both the French Open and U.S. Open singles finals in the same season, even if it's not eight. The point is that is a special accomplishment for any player, let alone a 23-year-old. Of course, both of these players have already clinched their spots in the ATP Tour finals, solidified their cases as two of the pre- 
premier rising young talents in the men's game, and we get to watch them do battle. Again, not only to capture their maiden singles crown, but of course to ascend to that world number one ranking. What a stage, what a scene for our final Grand Slam match of the year. And of course, on this podcast, I want to set that scene for all of you tennis fans. Offer my thoughts, my preview, not only from a statistical standpoint, but from a tactical standpoint as well. What are the advantages each of these players have? How can they maximize those advantages in this matchup? That will be the discussion, uh, the topic, I should say, of today's show. Of course, on this Ace of the Day segment, we're also chasing excellence. That's right, folks. Somehow the tennis gods, for some reason, decided to smile upon us during this week two of the U.S. Open after a 6-15 and 15 opening to this 2022 U.S. Open. We were 6-15, and 15, down 6.97 units overall. Folks, we have worked our way back to the positives. That's why you saw the celebra- uh, celebratory, is how you say that word, celebratory goatee in our Ace of the Day segment video on day 14. Folks, I could finally shave off that beard of shame. Now, we're 16-17 and 17 overall, so we're still playing for significant keeps here on day number 14, but we are now plus 1.09 units overall going into the final day of action. We rallied from that 6-15 and 15 metric to a 10-2 and 2 up 8.06 unit finish, but folks, it comes down to the final day. Now, I could be a wimp and ensure that whatever I bet today is less than 1.09 units overall. That I'm not risking that much. That way, I end up in the positives no matter what. But folks, here at Crack Rackets, we take a glass half full perspective always. We also believe in a risk it for the biscuit philosophy. What fun would it be if I shied away from the final Grand Slam match of the year? So, of course, I have one final ace of the day for all of you tennis fans. Again, if we hit this pick, we end at 500. 17 and 17 overall would mean an 11 and 2 finish. Boy, wouldn't that be excellent. We're up 1.09 units overall. Can we stay in the positives? We got to nail day 14 if we'd like to do that. So tennis gods, one last time I ask you to smile upon me as I try to deliver a final victory. Here are my thoughts on the U.S. Open men's singles final. My pick for day 14's GSP ace of the day. And I am a man who believes in superstition. So much like yesterday's show where I right off the bat gave you my pick of Iga Sviantek. I'm going to do the same on today's segment. Folks, I think it's impossible. You do this job long enough. You just start to see when dominoes fall into place and when the script is being perfectly written for an ending to occur. And I think we have seen throughout the course of this 2022 season, whether it was his dramatic three-set loss in those windy conditions at Indian Wells, his ability to bounce back at the very next event, capture the 2022 Miami Open title, for him to carry that success into the clay court season, win Barcelona, win Madrid, beat Nadal, Djokovic, Zverev, back-to-back, quarterfinals of Roland Garros, round of 16, Wimbledon. He is 
Sinner, Nadal, the only three players to reach the second week of all four majors this season. And of course, it's the way he's won his last three matches in five sets. It's the fact that somehow Carlos Alcaraz continues to look unfatigued despite the extent of t- an amount of time he has spent on court. And yet I just think all of the signs are in place. I think Carlos Alcaraz is ready to ascend to that final step. I think he is ready to become the youngest world number one in ATP Tour history. I think he is ready to forever be known as Carlos Alcaraz Grand Slam champion. And I think he's ready to assert himself as the player to beat over the course of this next decade and as we begin to turn the page on the big three era. Now, I do want to preface, as Gil Gross did in our mini break podcast, recapping all of the semifinal action. If you want to hear my thoughts on Carl, uh, Alcaraz Tiafo extensively, you want to hear my thoughts on Rude Hatchinov, go check out that episode of the show. But, I mean, again, to watch Carlos Alcaraz transcend all aspects of of sport right now. I think everyone you're watching, and I can speak to personal anecdotes, all of my friends, not necessarily tennis fans, but sporting fans, have fired me a text saying, who is this Alcaraz kid? How does he manage to make these behind-the-back shots, these seemingly impossible gets night after night, point after point? If I knew the answer... I wouldn't be podcasting. I'd be coaching Grand Slam champions day after day, week after week, because Carlos Alcaraz is just a special talent. There's no other way to describe it. Of course, you look for Carlos Alcaraz this season. He's now a remarkable 50-9 and overall on the year. He's winning 85% of his matches, and I know I have repeated this sort of perspective when discussing the context of Sviantec's Success, And I know I keep referring to this metric, but I have gone back and looked at the historic seasons, the standout years for Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, but not just them, the next tier of superstar. What did a career season look like for a Leighton Hewitt, for a Marat Safin, a Stefan Edberg, a Pete Sampras, and Andre Agassi? Because to compare anyone's primes to the primes of the three greatest players of all time— I mean, that's the most ridiculous standard you could hold one to, although we'll get back to why Alcaraz isn't too far off from that standard. But, you know, again, what do the great ones do this early in their career? What do the greatest seasons in tennis history look like? And the reason I wanted to study that perspective is so that I can recognize it when it emerges in any given season on tour, so I can be a better analyst for all of you tennis fans. And folks... From a metrics perspective, from a statistical perspective, Carlos Alcaraz is on track to have one of those special transcendent seasons, not just for a 19-year-old. He may damn set the record for what is possible as a teenager on the ATP Tour, but one of those transcendent seasons, period, in this point of his career. You look for Carlos Alcaraz, 50-9 and overall on the year. That's an 85% win percentage, folks. 19 years old, he's winning 85% 
of his matches. That's just ridiculous. And, you know, again, you look for Carlos Alcaraz, it's the success he's had across the board, regardless of the level of his opponent. You start out with the fact that in 59 matches, Carlos Alcaraz has won at least one set in every match that he's played this season. Not a single loss in straight sets, indicative of regardless of what's going on with his legs, and he's had to play two matches in a single day twice this year, he's going to compete. He's going to get a set. He's going to find a way to work his way into the match. He's also now 16-6 and this year against top 20 opponents. 16-6. and He's 8-4 and against the top 10 this year. Kid's 19 years old, and he's already beating the very best of the very best in the professional game. You look for Carlos Alcaraz. He's a top three returner on the ATP Tour this year. He's breaking serve 30.2% of the time. And for those of you curious, again, break percentage, how frequently you're breaking your opponent's serve. Um, if you're over 30%, that's the elite of elite in tennis history. For perspective, Nadal's career average 33. Uh, excuse me, 32.6. Djokovic's career average 33.2. Schwartzman's over 30% for a career average. I am sure there are other players you can find, but you know, that's the list of players that I have looked to as the elite returners, certainly in this era when I think the return of serve metric has changed because players are able to work their way into service games more frequently, given the slowing down of so many different court surfaces. The point being, 30% is that elite threshold. Carlos Alcaraz is already there as a 19-year-old. He was hovering in the 34% range through the first four, five months of the season. That's better than prime Djokovic, prime Nadal, and he's 19 years old. And we all see it, by the way, his ability to hit any forehand return cleanly, whether he's six feet behind the baseline, 12 feet behind the baseline, or on top of the baseline trying to impose his will and take the ball early and on the rise. He's great when he takes that backhand on the rise as well. And yes, he started to spray a bit more with those returns, particularly towards the back half of the season. And I think part of that has to do with the speeding of the surfaces and him working on his court positioning to adjust to those speeds accordingly. But there's no denying Alcaraz's intrinsic ability as a returner and Again, the numbers speak for themselves. Carlos Alcaraz, 125 and 33, 79% win percentage over the course of the past two and a half years. Now he's 82 and 26 during that stretch of time at the ATP level. So you want to say 125 and 33? Well, you know that he was 43 and seven in Challenger and ITF matches, which first of all, for a teenager, I apologize, Super Producer Daniel Westhoff, for making you do more work here. That's f***ing nuts. That's just a ridiculous amount of success. You're talking Gasquet, Nadal, Djokovic, you know, uh, Gasquet, Nadal, Djokovic, and Del Potro. Those are the players who have won that percentage of matches at the futures and ITF levels when they're that young. Again, he's 82 and 26, though, through his first 108 matches at the ATP Tour level. 82 and 26. He's winning 76% of his tour level matches, and he can't even legally buy a drink in the United States. You look for him. I mentioned the metrics this season that he's 16 and 6 against the top 20, 8 and 4 against the top 10. You look for him. For his career now, he's six and four. Uh, excuse me, six and four can't be right. Six and four on hard courts against top ten opponents. Twelve and six for his career. He's twenty and eleven for his career against top twenty opponents. Eleven and eight when those matches come on hard courts. 
I mean, look, Carlos Alcaraz is the real deal. For what it's worth, he's also already 2-0 in his career against Kasparud. He beat him 2-4 in Marbella last season on the clay. He beat him 5-4 this year in the Miami Masters final. And when you look for Carlos Alcaraz, of course, I've gone through all the metrics. And for what it's worth, according to our friends at DraftKings, he's a minus 235 favorite. He's a 68.3% favorite, according to the Tennis Abstract Singles Forecast. It's the totality of things that Carlos Alcaraz can do. Francis Tiafo executed a flawless game plan against Alcaraz in the semifinals. He came into the net. He played on his terms. He played big on the first serve. He extended points athletically. He asked every question you can ask of the 19-year-old. On, I think it was 56 total attempts to the net, Tiafo won 52% of his charges forward. It didn't matter when he hit the approach shot, where he hit the approach shot, how disadvantageous of a position he thought he had Alcaraz in. Alcaraz managed to find ways to dig out of those spots. Alcaraz finds a way to dip that first passing shot at your feet so he gets a look at a second pass, and you can't give Carlos Alcaraz a second look at anything. Alcaraz, on over 30 attempts, won 72% of his net points. He's also efficient moving forward, following his big forehand to the net, using his speed to beat you to the spot, and shows off the touch not only on the drop shot but on the drop volley, a confidence when swinging through the overhead. You know, Pat McEnroe had a fascinating conversation with his brother John and Chris Fowler last night on the broadcast about what are the things Carlos Alcaraz needs to improve. And, you know, they all prefaced it with, well, for a kid his age, the guy is more advanced than you will perhaps ever see in your lifetime as a professional tennis player. But you look for Carlos Alcaraz. The second serve is certainly attackable, and you look for Alcaraz this season, who's a statistical darling by just about every metric. The most amazing thing, Carlos Alcaraz is winning 55.8% of his second serve points this year. That number ranks third on the ATP Tour. He trails Opelka, Kesmenovic, then it's him. He's ahead of Kyrgios, Djokovic, Nadal, Hercots, Tsitsipas, Kasper Ruud. It's like even the thing you think Carlos Alcaraz needs to work on, and he does need to work on his second serve. You can say that about every player, but he ranks third on the ATP Tour in that metric. Now, you look for Carlos Alcaraz's first serve win percentage. He uh, dips a little bit further. Carlos Alcaraz this season ranking 22nd amongst top 50 players in first serve win percentage. Now, that was another thing Carlos uh, Patrick McEnroe pointed out, that Alcaraz probably needs to go a little bit bigger on the first serve, win himself a few more free points. Not that physically he needs the free points, but imagine if he was able to win free points more frequently, how it would make his life that much easier. That said, when he connects on the slice serve out wide on the deuce side, you're just in trouble because if he gets a first forehand and he's hitting that forehand inside out and you're on the run while he's hitting that first forehand, you're not winning that point. Uh, Alcaraz has you frozen whenever he's in the ad side corner because his ability to go inside out, inside out, inside in, meaning attacking ad side, backhand, ad side, backhand, then going to the open space and attacking his opponent's forehand. He's so effective at that combination. He'll mix in the drop shots. He's comfortable swinging through the backhand line. He is capable of extending every rally. You know, again, I don't know 
I, it, I, you know I love to zag here on this podcast. You know I like to play devil's advocate and give you that. well, what about this take? And the devil's advocate, what about this take for Carlos Alcaraz going into this U.S. Open final is that he's played 13 hours, 27 minutes. He's played 15 sets. It'll be his fourth match in seven days with that background going into it. Plus, it's his first slam final. Plus, num- world number one is on the line. Wouldn't the combination of mental and physical fatigue overwhelm any 19-year-old? It's possible, sure. And if you want to say Carlos Alcaraz hasn't played the big points great, the fact that he's 0-4 in his four tie breaks he's played in the last two rounds, got, you know, lost two tie breaks to Tiafa, lost two tie breaks to Sinner. If you want to say that, that's your prerogative. I would also point out that he immediately... Uh, or he fought off match point in the fourth set against Yannick Sinner. He also, after earning an early break in set number five against Tiafo, got broken back only to right away get that break right back and breaks to earn the clinch for 6-3 in the fifth. You, you can only do that if you have cojones. Again, that is the biggest question. How much gas does Carlos Alcaraz have left in the tank? But if we've learned anything about Alcaraz this season, who by every metric, he's currently number one in the live rankings. He's number two in the points race, but a victory over Nadal, uh, over Rude, he'll surpass Nadal as the number one guy. He's third in overall ELO rating, which includes the 2012, 11, 10, all these seasons that Nadal, Djokovic, you know, all these guys have played. Now, it weighs the more recent seasons more heavily, but Alcaraz has worked his way up to third in overall ELO rating. Trails just Djokovic and Zverev. He's ahead of Nadal. He's ahead of Sinner, ahead of Medvedev, ahead of Kyrgios, etc. Hardcourt specific ELO, third overall. Trails just Djokovic and Zverev. 2022 specific ELO, meaning just measuring the 2022 results. He trails just Nadal, Djokovic, and Zverev as the fourth best player. And that's prior to these U.S. Open results being entered, which after which, if not exceeding to number one, he will certainly be no lower than number two on that list. I talked about it in the open of this podcast with everything Carlos Alcaraz has done. It's his seventh final of the year that leads all ATP players, his 16 victories over top 20 opponents. That's the most on the ATP tour this season. He's earned titles in Miami, in Madrid, in Barcelona. Now he's competing in his first Grand Slam final against Francis Tiafo. The crowd loves Francis Tiafo, and yet even they were cheering in awe of what Carlos Alcaraz was accomplishing. So that's the case for Carlos Alcaraz. Now, I know I haven't gotten into the specific matchup for he against Kasparud, but before we do that, let's talk about Kasparud, who, again, with a win— also ascends to the world number one ranking. And you look for Rude this season, 44 and 15 overall this year. He's made six finals in this ATP season, two different titles for him this year. That six finals ranked second, tied with Nadal, trailing only Carlos Alcaraz. You look for Rude, he's 11 and six against top 20 opponents this season, two and three against the top 10, but got a win over Zverev on his way to that Miami final, win over Felix on his way to the Canada a semi-final. Now, didn't have to face a top 10 opponent on his way to the Roland Garros final, but of course, not only reached his first slam quarter final, but reached his first slam major. And all of us expected him to have success given his non-slam 
but ATP-level success on clay courts prior to this year's French Open. But in getting to that French Open final, he just got a, a lot of big monkeys off his back and answered a lot of questions. And how he's responded since then was a tough grass court season, but goes and wins a title in Stad, makes the semifinals in Canada. Now, to beat... Tommy Paul in five sets, Berrettini, Hachinov to make the most of a major with no Novak Djokovic and a Rafael Nadal on the other side of the draw. The question we have asked all of ourselves throughout the course of these past 12 months is, okay, we know Nadal, Djokovic, they're the next big thing. Who else is in the mix right now? Alcaraz clearly has emerged as one of those guys. Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, you know, their track records, they're certainly in the mix. You start to get to the Berrettini, Rublev, Nori category of player. Obviously, Felix, Carlos, Sinner, all in the conversation. Where is Kasparud? Is he more closer to the Berrettini Rublev tier? I think now he's pretty unequivocally no lower than the Tsitsipas. You know, I don't think if if you're making long-term power rankings with a second slam final on a second surface and his track record of Masters 1000 level success on every surface as well, because they don't play 1000 events on grass, how can you not have him over Stefano Tsitsipas at this point in your long-term tiers? If you categorize Tsitsipas as a tier one player, don't you have to categorize Rude as that as well? That's a conversation we'll have post-US Open. But again, you look for Casper Rude, and you guys know I love my advanced metrics, my clubs I make via Tennis Abstract. There are 11 players who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage this season. Both Rude and Alcaraz are two of those players. Now, Alcaraz, one of just three players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage, but after a slow start as a returner, Kasparud has worked his break percentage back up into the top 25. You look this season on the ATP Tour, top 25 uh, returners break over tw- uh, break 23% of the time or higher. You look for Kasparud. He's now just over that mark at 23.2%. Of course, the big thing for Kasparud has, is the first serve, and it's continued a pr- progression and him becoming one of the elite servers on the ATP Tour. His hold percentage, how frequently he's holding serve, has risen in each of the last five years. He's up to number 80, uh, 86% hold percentage. That ranks eighth amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour. And it's not just the first serve in a vacuum. It's the totality of the first serve package. His ability to hit a plethora of spots, whether it's the slice tee on the ad, which in my opinion is his favorite serve, the slice wide on the deuce, the body, uh, you know, the tee serve, body serve on that deuce side, as well as his ability to hit that kick serve, second serve, particularly on clay courts on the ad. You know, Kasparud can hit all of his spots. Kasparud can hit all of the spins. And I think very slowly he's worked his first serve to where it's gone from 115 miles per hour to floating in that 122 to 125 range. And his ability to generate neutral returns, they just guarantee him looks at his first forehand and his ability to spread the court with his first forehand inside out. And, you know, in the inside in ball, he had so much success against uh Karen Hatchinov with his the continued progression of his backhand, which got attacked ruthlessly and was identified as a as a flaw against elite competition against both Alcaraz in the Miami final, against Nadal in the Roland Garros final. 
That backhand looked excellent, whether it was against Tommy Paul in round number three, whether it was against Hatchnov in the semifinals, his backhand down the line passing shot, which he hits as a winner to clinch on set number one, uh, sort of epitomizing that continued progress of his backhand, how it does rip through the court with a little bit more ease now. Kasparud's a very complete player. He's comfortable moving forward. He is... Can something be very complete? It's either complete or it's not. Sorry, that's John Bacon, one of my college professors who just creeped into my brain. He is a complete player. There's no degrees of complete. You're either complete or you're not. He is a complete player. The backhand will sit short, and if you can get heavy pace, heavy topspin into that wing, yes, he'll pop it up for you and give you opportunities to find yourself as his opponent in an advantageous position on the baseline. But it's not a vulnerability. You know, he can slice that ball. He can rip it short angle. He is comfortable going down the line. I've often called Kasparud the righty mortal, emphasis on mortal, not immortal, version of Rafael Nadal. And that he's ruthlessly efficient in his plays in that it starts with a heavy, significantly topspin-based forehand. Again, that serve for Root, an absolute slingshot. He does a great job of putting returns in play and just, you know, even when he's not dictating with his forehand, forcing his opponents to come up with something special to beat him. The problem is, I think Kasparud, A, or excuse me, I think Carlos Alcaraz, A, is the sort of opponent who can come up with the degree of special tennis needed to defeat him, and B, I think Kasper Rude's backhand will be susceptible to the heaviness of the inside-out forehand of Carlos Alcaraz. I think Carlos Alcaraz hits the ball big enough, uh, deep enough, and consistently enough to expose what is the tiniest of weaknesses in that Kasparud backhand, which will sit short from time to time. And you just can't have the ball sit short against Carlos Alcaraz because then he's on his term. And and if we've learned anything over these last three matches, even when pushed by the big serving of Chilich, by the relentlessness of Sinner, by the aggression of Tiafo. Carlos Alcaraz is still going to Carlos Alcaraz. He's going to find opportunities to hit the massive first forehand. He's going to find opportunities to impose his ridiculous athleticism and start having you second-guess yourself with what passing shot is he going to hit. Is he going to go short angles? Is he going to go lob? Is he going to go down the line? Is he going to mix in a drop shot here now? A, I just think Carlos Alcaraz can do all of the things Except for serve, I'd give the slight edge of the first serve to Kasparud. I think there's a little bit more depth, a little bit more pace, a little bit more action on that Rude serve, although Alcaraz does hit the kick serve well and will find that Kasparud backhand return, which, as we saw against Nadal, uh, can be an issue for him. But I like the Kasparud first serve. I do like his ability to find first forehands. And if Carlos Alcaraz does not have his full legs underneath him. Kasparud is the perfect player to spread the court and expose that physicality. Get Alcaraz stretched on that backhand wing. Kasparud also hits his forehand big enough, heavy enough that he will not be afraid. Much like Yannick Sinner wasn't afraid, Rude's not going to be afraid to go forehand to forehand with Carlos Alcaraz. And you can't be afraid of that because when Carlos Alcaraz knows you're hitting to the ad side of the court, that's when he kills you. That's when he's running around the ball and hitting forehands from that corner. and That's when you're most paralyzed against him. Rude's going to have to attack the Carlos Alcaraz forehand. Rude's going to have to spread the court regardless of what shot it calls for. And just, again, 
try and break the will, try and expose the fact that the, that Alcaraz has been on court for 13 plus hours in the last five days and has played 15 sets of tennis in his last three matches. There's no doubt Kasparud can keep this match competitive. Even their four and five matchup, five and four, whatever it was in Miami, was extraordinarily competitive. And when you're looking at the board, VR friends at the DraftKings Sportsbook, there are some options. Over 38 and a half games. That's four, five, you know, four sets of tennis, you're going to hit that number. Minus 135. 39 and a half games, minus 125. You want to take over 10 and a half games in the first set. You think maybe Rude gets out to a quick start before Alcaraz gets back into things, or both of them come out hot, or both of them come out nervous as they're both trying to win their first major. Over 10 and a half games, bigger than 6-4 that first set, plus 170. Also, again, with the totals, over four total sets, plus 170. Do you really see either guy winning in straight sets? I could see Alcaraz putting together a comprehensive performance and just that final feather in the cap. So maybe he could win in straights. Carlos Alcaraz hasn't lost a match in straight sets all season long. I don't think this is the match where he does. So I like four sets plus 170, five sets plus 285. You can bet both. And as long as each player wins a set, you're winning some sort of money. You know, rude to come out hot, maybe a little dead leg Alcaraz. He works his way slowly into the match. Plus 150, rude to take the first set. Rude plus 650 to win three sets to one, plus 800, three sets to two. Alcaraz plus 145 to win in straights, plus 310 to win three sets to one, plus 550 to win three sets to two. I'm going to ride the dog that took us here. I'm going to go with Carlos Alcaraz, and I'm not going to take his minus 240 money line. That's just too much juice for us to lay. I'm going to go with Carlos Alcaraz, minus three and a half games, minus 130 odds. And look, there's a lot of reasons to, or as I mentioned, for why Alcaraz can and should win this match. The question is, how much gas does the 19-year-old have left in the tank? And simply put... I just don't want to bet against him. Like, I I don't feel comfortable betting against Carlos Alcaraz after seeing what he's put together these past three performances. I know they've been physical acts of marvel. And in my opinion, not since Djokovic at the 2012 Australian Open where he beats Murray Nadal back-to-back in five sets. Not since that performance have we seen something quite like this at a single major event. It just feels like... All the script is being written, and this is Carlos Alcaraz's moment. And again, he'll find a way to recover enough. And once he's in the match, even if he gets off to a slow start, I think he does have the forehand. He does have the physicality, the passing ability, the heaviness of his ball to push Kasparud back off the baseline. I'm taking Carlos Alcaraz to win this match. I'm taking him to cover three and a half games as well. Would I love two and a half games, even if I had to lay minus 150? I would, because I think in a win, in a three out of five set match, you're just going to cover a two and a half game spread. I never see a world where Carlos, if Carlos Alcaraz loses a set 6-1, it means he's getting blown out in this match and we've lost it already. And I just don't see a world where Carlos Alcaraz is ever blown out. So I'm going to take Alcaraz minus three and a half games over Rude. It's minus 130 if you do that. It's better than his minus 240 money line odds. We're going to take the extra value. We'll take the three and a half games. He wins in straight sets. I really don't think it's going to be six, six, and six. I think if Alcaraz win this match in straight sets, it means he's fresh. And it means he's probably pulling away by the end of it. 
I think it's tight four. And I think ultimately Alcaraz gets through those tight four. I'll take him in three and a half games. Again, the thing he does so well, Rude wants to hit that big T-serve on the ad side. You just can't hit a T-serve to Carlos Alcaraz's forehand because if Alcaraz gets a look at a forehand return, the point is going back to neutral. I think Alcaraz moves so well in and out of that corner that it sort of, I don't want to say neutralizes, but somewhat does the effect of that Kasparud inside-out forehand. And again, forehand to forehand. Normally, you always take Kasparud. This is one of these rare instances where I am not... I'm riding Carlos Alcaraz, 19-year-old, to capture his first slam title, to become the youngest player ever in ATP Tour history, to ascend to the world number one ranking. But more than anything, I'm excited to kick my feet up and enjoy this match. Of course, if you're looking for recaps of anything that's happened during this 2022 U.S. Open, head on over to our mini break podcast feed. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to our friends at DraftKings. Remember, bet $1 using our promo code AOD at DraftKings. Get $100 in free bets. With that said, my pick for Day 14, Elkraz, minus three and a half games over Root, minus 130, 1.3 units to win one. That is your final ace of the day. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at DraftKings, and for all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, may the odds be ever in your favor. Good luck, everyone. Good luck, everyone.